0: Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 120-bit address space wormhole. A quick reminder that there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and other Packet Pusher podcast shows. If you're interested, you can go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. And uh, hey, if you've got something really cool working with IPv6, we want to hear about it. So join us on the IPv6 Buzz. We would love to hear all about what you got working with IPv6 and why it's cool and all that other good stuff. I'm Ed Horley. I'm with my co-host Tom Coffeen and Scott Hoag. And today we're going to be talking about NIST and their work around IPv6 with our guest Doug Montgomery, who's with NIST. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Awesome. And and let's jump into it. Let's let's hit hit you up with some questions here. Um, And I think the obvious one probably to start with is maybe describe a little bit about what NIST is all about, what its role is, what your goals are, maybe your your mandates, etc. And then what you do for NIST and and sort of how that intersects with IPv6.
1: Sure. So you know at the At the agency, 10,000-foot level, right? NIST is a science and technology laboratory in the Department of Commerce focused on standards, measurement science, and industrial competitiveness. You know, our mission is broad. Currently, there's major programmatic thrusts at NIST and things like quantum science, bioscience, advanced manufacturing, IoT, and, of course, in in the space we're talking about today, we um, have large programmatic thrusts in cybersecurity and advanced communications. Now, within this, I manage an internet research and standards group focused currently on topics of internet infrastructure protection, um, DNS and BGP security and robustness. Uh, We do work in SDN, virtualized and programmable networks. Everybody's interested in AI today, we have Ongoing research projects and trying to apply AI to network security and robustness. We're working in IoT security, zero-trust security architectures, and of course, IPv6 and next-generation core networks like 5G. Within that scope, you know, we do basic um, and applied research active in the IETF and IRTF communities. We work with NANOG and ARIN in some areas. So, you know. We, we do research, we develop standards. Um, we also focus a lot on commercialization and deployment. So we do things like build um, prototypes and test tools that help commercialization and publish um, deployment guidance and practice guides. We also get involved in government-wide initiatives, often doing all the things I said before, but in support of you know, direct policies created in other places in the government. You know, and in in general, we think of our broad mission is is sort of providing the technical infrastructure for trustworthy networking, improving the trust and confidence in networking.
0: Yeah. And I I think my first introduction actually was through Scott with a lot of the work that you guys were up to. I mean, Scott was the one who really sort of told me like, hey, there's this whole thing going on around the government side that they do around standards. I was like, oh, okay. And And that's when I first got involved with sort of paying attention to what you guys were up to.
2: U.S. federal government, you know, is very early to, you know, have mandates and goals around IPv6. They have, you know, incredibly large IT systems, and they knew that, you know, they couldn't sustain operations with IPv4 forever, and they wanted to, you know, get departments and agencies to, you know, create a plan and start to IPv6 enable some of their internet-facing devices. And, you know, they've done that, and they've They've made quite a bit more progress than even commercial organizations in this country or even other countries, because they've, you know, chipped away at it and worked at it for a long period of time. You know, as, as an enterprise, you know, you think, oh, I can continue to operate with IPv4 for a number of years, but you're compressing your project plan. You know, the longer you kick the can down the road compressing the time you have to deploy IPv6 you're going to be up against a wall at some point maybe 2025 2030 but the federal government has given themselves a really long runway to do it at their own pace and they've made progress because they've just chipped away at it over time right and that, and that was part of the function for NIST right Doug
0: was was to help sort of codify some of those standards for what other other agencies and organizations within the US federal government actually do Around V six, if, if I'm not mistaken, in there I don't want to put words in your mouth. So, <laughs> I'll
1: no, sure no, no. It. You know, we've we've been supporting, um, you know, the the initiatives, the government wide initiatives. Uh, you know, we always think of it as providing the uh, the technical infrastructure to um, support those goals. I'm glad that Scott recognizes the fact that you know within our own time frames. You know, the government has been pretty successful in this, right, is that, you know, I always point out that the trade press always likes to focus on when we fall short of our goals. But, you know, starting there, there was a there was a early initiative in, in 2005 in the government, which is when this sort of got tasked by OMB to take on the role of, <clears throat> you know, providing standards, profiles and product testing programs to support this um, Pretty simple initiative in 2005, but in 2010, you know the the OMB had a uh, much more focused initiative with very specific deployment goals. The V6 enable public facing services by 2012, and to you know deploy internal interp- on internal enterprise networks by 2014. And by then, we had stood up the USG V6 profile, which is a, a a standards profile to support product acquisition and the USG v6 test program and issued, you know, some initial guidance on secure deployment of v6. You know, in that timeframe of 2010, right, as Scott sort of notes, it was a pretty bold move, right? The world of IPv6 in 2010 wasn't nearly as mature or stable as it is today. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's the importance, right, of having a product test program and and helping people um write requirements to a, to technical requirements to buy IPv6 products that are reasonably capable, right? Because in those time frames, it was very common, right, to get the product that claimed that it did IPv6. It probably, you know, might even set it on the side of the box. And you get it out of the box and figure it out that. Literally, it did next to nothing with IPv6.
2: It bridged. Yeah, buyer, buyer's remorse. <laughs> Is
1: that a thing? It's a bridged right, well, interface that passes packets. <laughs> you're lucky if it did that. But yeah, you know, yeah. from our perspective, you know, part of part of those plans and you know the the, the, the government initiatives didn't come with you know large additional funds was that we're going to get there um, through tech refreshes, as Scott pointed out, right? A long runway that if you, you know, starting in 2010, if every product you buy going forward, whether you wanted to enable it at the time or not, had a reasonable requirement specification for ipd 6 and could be tested, you know, come the day that you wanted to enable, it should have, right? The capability mm-hmm. should have been sitting there, right? It wasn't... Mm-hmm. A forklift upgrade was sort of the overall philosophy of it all, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, if y- the NIST has their Advanced Network Technologies division has a has a website that keeps track of USG IPv6 enabled domains, and it shows today set forty point seven percent of U.S. government domains use IPv6, and it's operational five hundred nine domains. That took a lot of work, you know. There's oh. a lot of progress there.
1: Right, so that test tool is built in my group, and I mm-hmm. guarantee you that because it effectively provides a continuous test and monitoring capability. You know, we've handheld many of those organizations in getting those public facing services up and operational.
0: Yeah, and that and that makes sense because not every organization is going to is going to have the necessarily the size and expertise to be able to get V six deployed in in the way that's sort of required. Right, so. Having guidance and having standards that are that are that are vetted by an organization like yourself makes a huge amount of sense to have that as a shared resource across for the federal government, right? I think I think right. that's that, I think that's one of the main objectives that you get and, and, and services you guys actually provide is is having that standard set so that not all these different organizations are trying to write their own IPv6 standard and testing uh, uh, capabilities, right? Because it's it doesn't make right. sense.
1: Well, that doesn't scale on the government side, nor would industry want that occurring, right? right? Yeah, so, yeah. you know, one of the things about everything we do, you know, including the profile and the test program, is all the specifications are always, you know, sent out for multiple public comment periods. In the case of our test program, back in 2008 or 2009, we looked, you know, when we were first tasked to, to put something out there operational, um, we looked at various testing programs that existed at that time. Um, some of the DoD, Etsy had some testing efforts going on at the time, but really chose to align ourselves with the IPv6 Ready Logo Program, right? Because mm-hmm. at the time we thought it was both the most open, um, you know, industry-driven and vetted by industry program. And so we signed an MOU with the IPv6 Forum that basically declared that. Our test program will always be, um, you know, aligned to the maximum extent possible to the IPv6 Ready Logo program. And to this day, we still do that. Right. Actually, just, just today, I uh, got some new test tables from the v6 Ready Logo program where they had found a bug and we need to correct our tests to align to theirs.
2: Yeah, so our longtime listeners would remember IPv6 Buzz show number six about IPv6 interoperability testing where we had Tim Winters, the director of the University of New Hampshire's interoperability lab, come and speak to us about IPv6 product testing. That was back in t- August of 2018. That, that was a good show.
1: Yep, we are still, you know, partners, you would say. The entire mm-hmm. usgv 6 program is partners with the IPv6 Ready logo program. Mm-hmm. And you know, in particular UNHIOL as the as the US representative of that program. Mm-hmm.
3: I'm gonna be really controversial here and say though that NIST has a much cooler logo <laughs> than <UNHIOL. laughs> Or the IPv6 forum for that
0: matter. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um yeah, I mean maybe maybe we talk a little bit around the maybe some some V6 project status, since you mentioned you you're you're still currently actively doing that, so you've got you know, active profiles and other things. Can, maybe you can walk the audience through what exactly is making up what NIST is doing around that, because maybe not everyone necessarily understands what those what those functional areas are for what you guys are providing and how that works. From maybe a big picture level and then down into some of the the actual components of what, of what you guys are defining for V six. That would be useful for.
1: Sure. So, as I noted, right? So we we produce um, a standards profile whose goal is to um, basically make accessible to people writing acquisition requirements rfps the ability to specify ipv6 capabilities right and you know often when i give talks uh to folks and try to explain it you know ipv6 sounds like frankly it sounds like one thing right it's you know it's uh Four characters. It's it's gotta be simple. Um, our current profile, I think, cites 172 RFCs. And IETF RFCs, you know, don't make the, the, the greatest unit of requirement specification. Sometimes, you know, one spec overlaps to yeah. topics or things
0: several rfcs or they all get munged up and everything becomes rfc 8200
1: <laughs> right <laughs> or right like that. And, yeah. you know it has it has both problems right yep. it's sometimes you know a core piece of functionality right Like you know look at the the parts of slack that you have to do to make these six work at all well that's over in a different spec called slack right and so so one of the key things that the profile does is take all of that complexity of rfcs and you know People who have tended to profile or you know try to write their own requirements sometimes leave out key components that you have should have actored in. So anyway, it, it bundles all of that complexity into functional units that we we now call capabilities and give those and gives those capabilities a name that we think you know is is at a higher level of abstraction so people can write both complete and technically consistent requirement statements for V6 capabilities by specifying it in terms of our profile.
0: And it, and it holds the vendor's feet to the fire a little bit more about not being vague about what they do or do not support. I think that's the most, one of the right. most important things because it's, it's it, there's very, there's a lot of hand waving I think that goes on within the manufacturer side of saying, yeah, we support V6 or yes, we support a feature, but they don't give you the, the, the technical specifications about what they actually are doing under the covers in, in terms of completeness of supporting that, right? And I think that's what, what you guys are really trying to hit on is, 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 is giving a, a much more comprehensive checklist or task list that they
1: have to conform to. Right. So we effectively define a vocabulary for writing capability requirements for all sorts of IPv6 products. In some places, we fill some gaps. I mean, when we started to do this in 2008, you know, I sort of merrily went out there looking for, you know, okay, where where is the IETF specification for what a firewall should do? Um, <laughs> and of course, uh, didn't find one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in some cases, um, like the class of products that we call network protection products, firewalls, IDSs, IPSs, we actually write some specification in the profile to help people, right? And And, you know, that area of network security products is always the one that You know, is either uh, lagging in its IPv6 capabilities, or at least there's consumer, you know, fear that the uh, security products are not v6 capable. So, in in some places, the profile actually, you know, writes its own specifications where they were lacking.
2: Early on, I remember looking at you know a, a very popular security vendor's firewall, you know, stateful firewall and it had passed you know, the test. But if you looked carefully, its role in the capabilities it was tested against was an IPv6 <laughs> router. Right. And, and it was defined as a router, but it passed, and it got the logo. And I was like, well, hang on a second. I'd kind of like a firewall to do a little bit more than a router. And right. also product testing, in defense of product testing, it's very difficult to if you had a very high bar to test all products against that very high bar, the the cost of the test would be really expensive because it's a lot of work to test five hundred features of every make and model of you know stateful firewall out there.
1: but you hit on a really important um, and often misunderstood part of our program, which is the the other side, the product mm-hmm. testing program. Mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly, this is still often misunderstood in the in the U.S. government. So I'm spending a fair amount of time trying to correct that. And, yeah. and you know, in November, we actually just released um, a significant revision to both the standards profile and the product test program, trying to make it easier to use um, and understand, simplifying it greatly. Adding, you know, new features and rolling to the new specs and eighty two hundred and all of that uh, RFC eighty two hundred and and many other spec updates, but beginning to address the issue. So our product test program is not an approved products list. It is a program that tests the capabilities of a product and reports them, and we've always depended on the idea. That someone would actually read the test result. <laughs> 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 not, just, not just that it has, and, and you know, I've heard this for years, and people, you know, I'll go to Fed V6 task force meetings, and somebody will say, just exactly what you said. Hey, we bought this firewall and it's on your list of tested products. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, you know, it can't even begin to block a IPv6 port. You know, what gives? And I'll ask. Did you read the test report? Did it pass the <laughs> firewall test? <Yeah.
2: laughs>
1: and so, you know, I don't know if we were naive thinking that people would actually read the tests, but we were very cautious, right? I mean, an approved mm-hmm. products list is a pretty draconian thing, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if it, if it was really, you know, you can't buy it or you there's some government policy that said...
0: Yeah, everyone would be fighting you on that. Yeah, (laughs) that would just be a nightmare.
1: And think about the early days of v6. There were lots of mandated features that nobody implemented, right? So what are we going to do? We're going to conformance test against that spec and say that everyone fails. So our, our design feature of the test program was a full disclosure program. We at an accredited third-party lab, will return a test report of exactly which features this product well, capabilities they're expressed in our units of functionality, which capabilities this product implements, that passes conformance and interoperability testing. And we always hope that you would read the
3: test report. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hope Springs eternal.
1: <laughs> um, you know, th- there are other programs out there, and you know the the DOD runs a program that has an approved products list, right? They're just on or off. And we chose a different model to be more flexible.
0: Yeah, and I think the DOD is right in, in narrow scoping to make sure that it conforms for what their set of requirements are. They're, they're sort of a specialty use case within the U.S. federal government requirements. That's right given, given the sort of security, stringent security requirements and other governance models that they have around what they do, right? That's a fair semi fair assessment about where
1: they're at yeah, you know that's an interesting space that could be a subject of another <laughs> another discussion let it, let it be said that um, we are working with them extensively, whether it's known or widely known right is is the doD has you know their own deployment initiative you know frankly I'm very impressed with, given that you know they they too were building profiles and test programs back in the you know, let's say 2008 to 2010 period. But then, then at one point, effectively, you know, issued guidance that V6 couldn't be deployed in DoD networks. Well, you know, within the last year, they have committed heavily to a V6 adoption program that's aligned with, um, generally aligned with the USG effort, the OMB directives. Mm-hmm. And we continue to work with them to harmonize requirements and talk about shared testing infrastructures and that sort of thing.
0: Oh, that's, that's great to hear. Because, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because uh, there's been a lot of, of, of talk on the town now with DOD advertising a bunch of their V4 address space and wondering if they're going to move that along in the market right. to, <laughs> as part of this V6 initiative for adoption.
1: If I can jump back to sort of the what's new, right? So, in, in, in November, there was this new OMB. Um, directive to the government, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this OMB policy called completing the transition to V six, and once again, right? As you know, Scott pointed out, we were pretty. Uh, the, the government was pretty ambitious in the 2010 era. Well, the, the 2020 memo is um, declaring the strategic intent for the federal government to deliver its information services, operate its networks and operate this access the services of others using only ipv6 it is effectively a policy to drive towards ipv6 only networks
0: yeah and it's a very aggressive timeline too because it's the date sets that are built for it i mean there there's there's a transition period for, for amount of time to sort of figure this out and adopt but i think right. by 2023 right. it's 20% needs to be v6 only and mm-hmm. yep 2024 is 50% and 2025 yeah. is Did I get get those right? We talked
2: about that on IPv6 Buzz show 68. And it's it's a big
3: deal. Right. Uh, can, Can I point out we're characterizing it as an aggressive timeline after Decades of disappointment. Well, yeah, yeah. Sl- <laughs> so I think the caveat there is, is V6 only, right. As opposed to being yeah, like dual, course, dual, yeah. dual stack. Absolutely. dual stack. So I, I,
0: I give a, I give a little bit of grace. I don't, I don't disagree with you that on that, Tom, about just generally even getting V6 up and operational in a dual stack environment. That would be true. It's like it's late to the game, but I think for V6 only, that's, that, that's a pretty,
3: I think that, I think that surprises people. And it's not to take away from, from Doug's larger point related to the, 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 the real effectiveness of those mandates, you know, which, which isn't always necessarily directly visible. You know, we're talking a lot about government, federal agencies, uh, but it has knock on effects in the enterprise space as well. Yeah, you know, yeah.
0: Everyone who wants to do business with the federal government suddenly has to, <laughs> has to has to be able to do that too, right?
1: So, absolutely. Uh, you know, you know, there are many um, large service and content providers who rolled out you know, dual-stack services back in the time of the previous policy who, in their rollouts, you know, basically said, one of the reasons we're doing this is that the U.S. government is now demanding it, right? Well,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, it's an interesting story now. I mean, you know, we've all seen the the presentations of, of Microsoft's efforts and Cisco's efforts at piloting V6 only in buildings or subsets of campuses. You know, that's going to be a challenge for sure. It's an, it's an aggressive goal. But I think it's in part meant to be a signal to the industry that here's where we want to go. We don't want to operate two network infrastructures going forward. And we want to get there. And the interesting thing, you know, before that policy came out, there were lots of you know chances to interact with industry just to see their reactions to it. And one of the things that really impressed me is you know, the parts of the industry who said, we're all in, we want to get there too, right? Mm-hmm. You help drive it, we want to get there. And so mm-hmm. I still think it'll be technically challenging, but I see more and more industry sectors who want to get there as well, right?
2: Yeah, there's, there's flow down, you know, by you may, by the federal government making a mandate, every commercial enterprise in the United States has to remit You know, taxes to the IRS uh, or the Treasury every month, you know, through an EFTPS system. And there's some, and someday that EFTPS system may be IPv6 only. So, enterprise, you know, any commercial entity that's remitting taxes needs to think about, well, maybe we would communicate with the federal government over IPv6, and we should have that as a plan.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think it's being sandwiched between other initiatives from larger organizations who are trying to solve many of the structural problems that I think the U.S. federal government is trying to solve, too, with v6, which is, you know, the Facebook-only, you know, you know IPv6-only data center sort of components, or, or what uh, LinkedIn was doing with v6-only, and and some of those, and, and just basically saying, look, a single protocol is easier to manage. Uh, we don't do both. We don't with both. We'll provide IPv4 as a service on top. And we can sort of demonstrate. Now the great advantage they have is they're, they're sort of a they own their stack top to bottom. Right. They 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 sort of have much greater granular controls about what they deploy versus maybe an enterprise who's buying commercial software. So I think the great advantage of the government stepping forward and doing this, and, and 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 NIST helping with the standards is that it allows enterprises to go back and say, like, hey, software firm that doesn't have any V6 support, you know you can't sell the government your product. You know, we need to get at least dual stack so we can talk to the federal government on V6. Maybe you ought to go get that built into your product and go. And here's some testing and conformance that you can go reference from NIST about what to do there, right?
1: Right. I mean, no doubt, right? I mean, you know, most of the government is operating commodity products and commodity services, right? Um, more and more so nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... If achieving our goals, we can drive those product suites and you know shared services to truly support v6 only enterprises, you know, everyone wins from that.
2: Doug, I've heard you speak in the past about you know this misdeveloped IPv6 capability vocabulary to define what an IT product function is. Is it a switch, is it a router, is it a firewall? And you've talked about this this idea or this this vocabulary in terms of capability summary strings or css mm-hmm. that define these requirements statements and it's kind of a an approach where you define this string if you're a computer scientist and you think in terms of these strings and you could parse the string and it, it can lend itself to some software automation in a, in a way how do these and i know you don't have a whiteboard here on a podcast but could mm-hmm. you describe what a capability summary string is and what does it do how does it work
1: sure so i noted right the, the the main purpose of the profile and and you know the new version of the profile only uses the capability summary string we used to give we used to provide two or three other mechanisms for expressing requirements a checklist and we dropped all those so the only thing we use now is this capability summary string right so so i said the profile groups functionalities um, you know, uh, uh, into uh, groups, large collections of RFCs and bits and pieces of actual IPv6 functionality into named capabilities, right? So they have names like core. I mean, some of the names are obvious, Slack, DHCP, client. And you write requirements in terms of a string. A string, you give it a name like NIST default laptop equals And you say it's a USG v6 host that supports core, Slack, DHCP, adder, ARC, and you know, IPSec if you want it, or TLS. It's basically you can write a complete requirement statement for the IPv6 capabilities. The real procurement will have all sorts of other requirements in a single string notation, which is just formed by. Um, you know, we use plus signs is, is producing a string of concatenated capabilities. The interesting thing about it is, you know, the uh, the syntax, if you will, of the mm-hmm. output of the test program is exactly the same thing, mm-hmm. a list of these capability strings, right? And so, you know, I was saying that we always hoped that somebody would read the test report and the new version of the profile in the test program, right? we put some thought and a fair amount of effort into making this easier to use and more consistent. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now there is one way of expressing requirements and the same exact thing, a capability string, right? The same exact syntax and semantics is what the test report reports. Mm -hmm. So if if your CIO shop defines, you know, the the default enterprise workstation, v 6 capabilities, and goes and looks for a test result, you'll see you know that you should be able to match now it's easier to match you know the output of the test result to a requirement statement
0: right so the string value is basically a search you can search on those strings values and be able to match up against what your criteria checklist right. is and that makes it a little bit easier to sort of do a match statement across all of the right. all of the products
1: let me say that we all know right that most people don't write detailed networking requirements for products right what you really want is a MacBook or, you know, choose your favorite product. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, going all the way back to, you know, the, the 2010 timeframe, there were modifications to federal acquisition regulations. And, and those modifications actually only said two things, right? Is that whenever you buy a piece of networked IT, you'll write, you'll, you'll provide V6, IPv6 requirements in terms of the profile. And you'll ask for a test result. And I actually contend, even if you didn't write a requirement statement, it is interesting to ask your vendor to submit a test result, right? Mm -hmm. Is that by now, the units of description of the output is such that, you know, if you know that your enterprise environment is a DHCP shop and you get a test result, even if you didn't write a requirement statement that shows a product, you know, doesn't support or can't pass DHCP client test that might be of interest to you right so we we even think that the you know clearly the testing has value even if you didn't write an explicit requirement statement going into it.
3: And, and Doug that brings me to a related topic um, and this artifact the, the supplier declaration of conformity mm-hmm. when a vendor's product is tested by the USG v6 testing lab and that that document is produced how does a, a potential deployer of IPv6 use this document? How is it something that's useful for them?
1: Right. So that's that's the report of the test program. It's important to you know focus on the S of S Right. It it's actually a report provided by the product vendor, signed by a company official of the product vendor, but it reports results from an accredited test lab, um, and for exactly what I said. Now, you know, there's two levels of detail. At, at the highest level of granularity, on the front page of that test report will be a capability summary string, right? This product supports the following capabilities, right? Core plus Slack plus the client. And so if you wrote one of those requirements going in, clearly you could match it. For each of those capabilities, there's actually detailed test results. Um, now, let, let me say that we don't have conformance and interoperability tests for every one of the capabilities called out in the profile. You know, I think earlier in our conversation, it was pointed out that if you exhaustively conformance tested every possible RFC and protocol, you know, the vendor community would hate us. It would be very expensive to, and so, you know, we focus on uh, what we think are um, the most critical protocols and capabilities, but to give you an idea, we have nearly 400 distinct conformance tests for what we call core, v 6 Core plus Slack has about 400 distinct conformance tests, and if you think about You know, the changes that came with, you know, the 8200 version of the spec trying to close all the holes in fragmentation reassembly and header um, processing order and all of that. There are distinct active protocol tests that verify that you actually implemented those things. Basically, every must that appears in the spec has a test. So you get this test result back, um, you know, it's free and open information, frankly, is it's, it's meant to, to, you know, uh, facilitate a government-wide acquisition and deployment program, but the test results are public. Anybody can look at the test results. Anyone could ask their vendor to go get the test results and supply an S-stock. It's not an inherently governmental thing.
3: And that's, that's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. on the enterprise side, because uh, just the history of watching enterprises deploy and, and not deploy IPv6 over the last decade or so. There's, there's often an effort to find and check the easy box where IPv6 is concerned. And somehow that, that gets reduced to the vendor being asked if a, a particular product platform supports this or that RFC. It's always a strange exercise on the vendor side of things. I got to witness that when I was at Infoblox to you know, to, to, Say, well, okay, yes, we're in conformance with RFC, blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's 8200. Of course, different RFCs have different levels of detail and different uh, specs that would result in nerd knobs for whatever the, the hardware or the software is. And so you, you, it turns into this really strange game of, of trying to game out what the customer is trying to do, the capabilities right. that we're talking about. And they may not know. <laughs> and, <they> may not, <laughs> and that's the thing. They don't know because they're just looking for the easy box. It's, like the, it's, a, it's a CYA exercise of like, well, we checked with the vendor and they said they support RFC, blah, blah, blah. Right. So the, the granularity <laughs> of testing results that are available through USGV6, we always try to point them in that direction. But then it was getting them to do their homework to, to yeah. figure out if you know eat so, your to vegetables. actually be able to read, <laughs> eat your broccoli and and, and learn and determine whether these test results apply to your environment or not. And of course, in in many cases, it's like neighbor discovery, well, yeah, of course, it's core IPv6 functionality or baseline IPv6 functionality rather, um, you know. But when they were, if they heaven forbid, they got to a point where they're like, well, we know that we need this feature in the v6 side, and it's like, well, we went and found the RFC. Do you support it? It's like.
1: Right so that, that gets back to the whole point that RFCs and you know their intricacies and details, you know, while important for the vendor community, right and we think that our profile serves two purposes. One is to abstract that for users writing requirements, right to, to a more accessible granularity of detail. but then on the backside, of course, we provide all of the technical. Detailed mappings to all those RFCs for vendors, right? So that mm-hmm. when, you know, when you see a USGV6 requirement statement that says, you know, you you have to support core and Slack and DHCP client, you can look in our profile and see the exact mappings. And there are a few places where, um, you know, the other thing that people typically do in profiles is step in and in very few cases, change the normative conformance requirements for things that you know, we might have thought should have been, well, we do think should have been a must, but wasn't, or certainly we think should be a must for use in government networks. Um, in some cases, we exclude some things, right, where specs will cite, Four or five, you know, uh, crypto algorithms, and we have to say, well, okay, you know, these two aren't for use in the government. So there's a few places where we x out some functionality that are that are embodied in whole RFCs. In some places, we actually reach in and say, yeah, you really should have made that a must. Now, in all cases, from from us, we consider that a recommendation. Right, we're we're providing recommendations for what you should put in your your requirement statements. Uh, The other thing I have to point out to people all the time is you don't conform. There's no such thing as conformance to the USG v6 profile. You conform to a requirement statement written Mm -hmm. in terms of the USG v6 Mm -hmm. profile. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And a couple of things when we were talking about possible uses, either in industry or other places, one of the key things that we did this year is we factored the old USG v6 profile into two things. One, a base thing that we call the NIST IPv6 profile, which really provides all of the core definitions of capabilities. And a second document called the USG v6 profile, which is a thin delta over top of that base document. And we did that because we had been approached by other user groups who wanted to use our first profile. But, you know, it had for use in the government and the title, and then various sections talked about government policy. And so that was a hard document for other people to cite. So now there's a NIST IPv6 profile, uh, other than having a NIST cover page, which says nothing USG specific in it. And it's Mandatory recommendations of capabilities actually is directly aligned with the new host requirements document. So it's one could claim, you know, it's it's aligned with uh, the IETF in that regard. And then there's the the USGv6 profile, which adopts that base NIST IPv6 profile and then customizes it for government use. And we did that to create a model so that other folks could do that, other large users groups.
0: And and in preparation for the next protocol,
1: right? (laughs) Uh, Well, there is that, right? We we have an ugly problem that, two things, is some people wanted to use the first profile and didn't because it had all this government uh, mumbo-jumbo in it. And some people wanted to use the first profile, had that same problem, and so they actually copied and pasted it into other national profiles. So there are other countries who have verbatim text pasted out of our first profile, but with the classic problem, you know, now it's a independent, unsynchronized document.
2: So,
1: <laughs> so we were trying to achieve that goal. Let's also make the entire uh, infant structure usable. Hey,
2: yep. imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, if you're a vendor and you
0: not like
2: that. <laughs> Well, yeah.
0: I mean, it's uh, maybe maybe this is a good breaking point and talk about I, what what do you want folks to take as as a takeaway from all of this? Uh, Doug, what what do you want folks doing? In, in a huge number of our audiences, enterprise focused, uh, commercial. There's federal and, and and you know universities, everyone else. What do you want them as a takeaway? What do they want? What do you want them using out of what NIST is providing? What's that? What's the top three bullet point items? You're like these are the things you should be doing.
1: Well, in terms of the things that we're providing, um, you know, the topic I just touched on, right, is that actually our profiles and test programs are open for use for other people outside the government. And we've tried, as I just explained, to make that now easier and and more palatable because we've uh, generalized the front end of it. We are about to launch a NCCOE, National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence Project, to build a demonstration effort and practice guide focused on secure IPv6-only enterprises. If you're not familiar with NCCOE projects, these are inherently multi-agency public-private partnerships where um, we get problems, use cases out of industry, out of other government agencies, in this case, focused on the new OMB mandate to take enterprises to an IPv6-only posture. And we partner with industry, right, to come in and help us to donate products and platforms and help us build out demonstrations that, you know, these goals are achievable in commercial products today and produce a practice guide to help people sort of get there and to also highlight where there's still problems, right? and
0: Where industry needs to work on things.
1: Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think they'll. I have no doubt that there will be uh, pinch points there, right? Where, you know, there there are issues still to resolve. But the initial project description for that should be out for public comment soon, and then there'll be calls for participation. But that's the other kinds of activities that we do at NIST: is produce guidance, produce these uh, shared testbed and demonstration projects. There's also a, a NIST security guidance document. That was published in 2010 um, that needs revision on the secure deployment of IPv6. In 2010, it filled a great void of guidance at that time. As we revise or replace that document, I think we need something, um, A, much more focused on you know, very specific use cases or deployment scenarios, how you know, what are the security concerns in public-facing services, virtual private cloud? You know, we really need to break it down into much more granular and focused units of guidance. And the other thing I'm determined to do when we rewrite that document is not, you know, think that NIST has to, to regurgitate words that are already out there, right? As you know, in the decade since the first security guidance, there's tons of security guidance.
0: Yeah, other good frameworks, right, that you can
1: leverage. Right. There's BCPs, there's great books. And so I, I want the revision of it to be both more focused, but also more of a index to, you know, there are now wealths wealths of knowledge to point at here, not just words that have to be uh, reiterated by NIST. Wow, fantastic.
0: Unlike V six, we have run out of space for this podcast. But thanks to today's guest, Doug Montgomery, how, how can the audience follow you on the internet? How can how can they get a hold of you?
1: You know, the best way, at least on this topic, is just to to Google search the USG V six program, and you'll find my contact information. You'll find all of our products and activities there. Pointers to registries of tested products. Uh, there are email lists. Once again, you can find them from that page that you can join to uh, be notified of changes in the programs from high-level changes to their specific mailing lists for those who want to follow the testing program. Like I said, uh, the IPv6 Ready logo folks sent me uh, an updated, a bug fix to a test script that once I upload it this afternoon, you know, I'll report that to the uh, testing list that there's been a change in one of our tests. So there's all levels of information that you can find there.
0: Well, you can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter. We're at IPv6Buzz. And you can also hit up each one of us on Twitter. Uh, Tom is at IPv6 Tom. Scott is at Scott Hoog. And you can reach me at, at eHorley. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. If you like the show, please give us a rating. us on, on iTunes. Hopefully you're listening on Spotify too. And if you like this podcast, we recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day 2 Cloud, and uh, Network Break podcasts. They're all great technical content over at Packet Pushers at PacketPushers.net. So long, and until next time, we'll see you on the internet, the IPv6 internet.
2: Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast
3: devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.